try this again. Good morning. Good morning. Are we still having technical issues or can you hear me fine out there? We're good. Everybody's good at all? Amen. I can hear the house full. Good. Uh, technology is such a blessing, but it's so nerve-wracking at the same time. Never know what's going to go. Listen, um, the title of this morning's message is Conquest Promised and Covenant Confirmed. And we're going to begin at Exodus chapter 23, and we're going to start at verse number 20. As I was thinking about this message, my mind went to uh, my children, my younger children, uh, Caleb and Tito. Uh, they're often asking me to commit to do things like, Daddy, can we do a sleepover? And what they mean by that is, uh, can we be in the bed with you and mommy and watch a movie? Or can we be in the bed with you and mommy and fall asleep and you guys carry us back to the room? And so I'm very, very careful to commit to do anything. Or my 18-year-old would be like, Daddy, can we go to Walmart and spend your money? Or can we go to Target? And so I'm careful to give them my word because anytime I tell them that I am going to do something, I am making a promise to them. I'm giving them my word. And there have been times in my brokenness and my fallenness and my not planning correctly that I've had to go back to them and say, daddy's going to have to apologize to you because he's going to have to break his promise. So daddy's going to have to apologize to you because we're not going to be able to do this. And uh, been time I've committed to people to be at places and I've had to apologize to them and say, listen, I overcommitted myself or I gave my word to you too hastily. I'm not going to be able to do that. That's because I'm a fallible, weak, broken, sinful human being. But when God tells us that he is going to do something, God does it regardless of the circumstances. God is committed to confirm his word, and he's committed to fulfill his promises. And so today we're going to look at Exodus chapter 23, starting at verse 20, and we're going to work our way through chapter 24, and we're going to see how God promises his people that they will conquer the promised land, the land of Canaan. And we will also see how he confirmed his covenant to the nation of Israel now. I understand that 31 verses is a lot of ground to cover. So what I'd like to do is spend most of our time in chapter 23 and then summarize or highlight some points in chapter 24. Having said all that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, I thank you because you've told us that your word will go forth and accomplish the purposes for which you Sent it. And so, Lord, I ask you today, minister grace to the hearers, Lord. In exchange, give us the ability to receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save our souls. Lord, remove distractions from us or anything that will keep us from what you have for us this morning. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so we pick up the reading there at verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you into the place I have prepared. Most scholars agree that this angel that would go before them is a Christophany. 
This means it was Jesus appearing in the Old Testament prior to taking on human flesh, prior to his virgin birth. And one hint that we get is in verse 21 informs us, my name is in the angel. The second hint that we get is that they are required to obey the angel. The third hint that the context or the text gives us is that he has authority to deal with their sin and only God can forgive sin. Now, why is this important? Because it speaks of the eternality of Christ. It speaks of the preexistence of Christ. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 says it this way, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. So it speaks also to the deity of Jesus Christ. God promises to go before them, that he would guard them, that this angel would speak with them. In essence, God promises to be with them. And in the same way that God promises them that he would be with them, God promises that he would be with us. Which brings us to point number one. God promises to be with us. Before Jesus ascends to heaven and he's giving the disciples what we commonly call the Great Commission, he says, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all these things that I command. And there's a line at the end that says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of time. I want to encourage you this morning. If you are feeling lonely, I want you to know that God is with you. If you don't have any friends, I want you to know that God is with you. If you don't get invited to the clique or the clans or the club, I want you to know that God is with you. If people don't recognize you or your accomplishments, I want you to know that God is with you. If people marginalize you, God is with you. If people categorize you, God is with you. I need you to know something that God is with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will be with you even until the end of the age. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, that great, great verse where God is speaking and he says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. The Greek word for never there is ume, and it's an emphatic future negative. We in theology call it a double, double negative, like saying not ever or no not. And in essence, God is saying, I will never, ever, ever leave you. God promises that he will be with them just as he would be with us. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way. This brings us to verse number 21. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Which brings us to point number two. 
God calls us to obedience. We see here that God called them to obey his word, his voice. He instructs them to obey the voice of the angel of the Lord as they travel along the way, as they conquered the promised land. As they were on this journey, they are to obey everything that Jesus says. In the same way that God calls them and instructs them to obey, he calls us to obedience. Now, I understand that some people in our culture, uh, to them, the word obedience might seem antiquated. To some people in our culture, the word obedience might seem oppressive. To some people in our culture, the word obedience might even seem irrational. But God is still holy. God is still right. God is still perfect, and God still calls us to obedience. Let's look at just of the few areas that God calls us to obedience. A, we are called to obey government authorities, Romans 13, verses 1 through 3. B, followers of Christ are to obey church leaders, Hebrews 13 through 17, not in a spiritually abusive or spiritually unhealthy way, but in a godly, wise, spiritually healthy way. See, children are to obey their parents, Ephesians 6, 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. If you are underage, or even if you are not underage, if you are living under your parents' roof, you are called to obey your parents. I love a quote from uh, Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology. Oh, I didn't give you D. Excuse me, I got ahead of myself. Followers of Christ are to obey God's word. James chapter 1, verse 22 says, But be doers of the word. And not hearers only because you're deceiving yourself. I love this quote from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology where he says, To disbelieve or disobey God's word is to disbelieve and disobey God himself. The wages of sin is still death. This is why Christ died for our sins. The gospel frees us to live a life of obedience to God's word. It's not a dutiful obedience done out of obligation or drudgery. The gospel empowers us to obey God out of pleasure and love because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Romans chapter 5 verse 5 says this, The love of God has been shed abroad upon our hearts by the Holy Spirit that is given. And therefore we can agree with what David says in Psalm 40 verse 8, I delight to do your will, O God. Now, back to the text, the phrase, he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him, is a very theologically rich phrase because it points us to the gospel. The word pardon there is the Hebrew word nasah. It conveys the idea of lifting away or carrying away, particularly our sin. But here's what I want you to see. 
Jesus didn't take sin or rebellion lightly in the Old Testament. And Jesus didn't take sin and rebellion lightly in the New Testament, which is why he died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Why did he have to die? Because the Bible teaches us that by nature, by birth, we have inherited sin. We are by nature children of wrath and separated from God. Therefore, God, in his infinite mercy in which he loved us, took on human flesh, lived a perfect life according to the law, would crucified, died on the cross, was buried and placed in a tomb and rose again from the dead on the third day to give us the hope of eternal life and to prove that he was in fact God. And now when we simply repent of our sins and believe the gospel that Jesus died as a substitute for us, that he took the penalty of our sin, the wrath that was rightly and justly due to us, and he took it and then gave, gave us his perfect righteousness and then rose again from the dead on the third day. We believe that and receive Christ into our lives. The Bible says that we are saved. Have you done that today? Have you received Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you repented of your sins? Have you believed the gospel? If not, I want to urge you not to leave here today without making the most important decision, praying the most important prayer you will ever pray in your life. Now, here's another thing I want to point out, which brings us to point number three. God is unchanging. In theology, we call it, we use the term immutable, the immutability of God. God is immutable, means he doesn't change. Malachi 3.6 says, I am the Lord and I change not. Hebrews 13.8 says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He did not overlook sin in the Old Testament, and he doesn't overlook sin in the New Testament. He deals with sin in the Old Testament, and he deals with sin in the New Testament. Folks, in case you didn't realize, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are one and the same. But some might say, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. The God of the Old Testament is a God of punishment and anger. If that's you today, I'd like to direct your attention to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 6, verse 8, where the Bible records these words, and Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Now, if that wasn't enough to convince you, I'd like to direct your attention to Isaiah 43, verse 25, where he says, I, I am he meaning the Lord, who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sin. God is always reliable. God is always trustworthy. God is always faithful. God is always good. God is always merciful. God is always sovereign. God is always just. 
God is always holy. God is always hates sin. He is the immutable, everlasting, all power, invisible, invincible, ever-loving, sovereign creator of the universe. This is why you can place your faith in him. This is why he is worthy of our praise and adoration and devotion. This is why he is worthy of our all. God is never pleased with sin. And yet he is always ready to forgive those who come to him in honest, humble repentance, seeking forgiveness and redemption. And this brings us to verse number 23 in the narrative. When my angel goes before you and brings you into the Amorites and to the Hittites and the Parasites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, that's a whole lot of heights. You shall, should not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do. But you shall utterly overthrow and break down their pillars or their altars or their, or their statues into pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and he will take away sickness from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in the land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you, and I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their back toward you, and I will send the hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites before you, and I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possess the land. Which brings us to point number four. God is the one who leads us to victory. God promised that he would bring them into the promised land. He assures them that he will drive out the inhabitants of the land and he will give them the victory. This should remind us that we are not saved by our own works, but that we are saved by grace. This should remind us that we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us who can help us overcome sin and grow in holiness. God says, I will drive them out, but you have to destroy their idols. We see similar synergy in the New Testament in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out, work it out. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Folks, at the end of the day, God is the one who gives us the victory. Then in verse 29, we read, I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. And what we see here is that God would drive out the inhabitants of the land gradually. So that this fertile land 
would not be overtaken by wild beasts. The more they grew as a nation, the more of the land God would give them. It will be a gradual process, which brings us to letter A. Be patient with the growth process. In the same way they grew gradually as a nation, we also go through a process of growing in holiness. Excuse me for a second. Sanctification is a process. Growing in holiness is a process. And we need to be patient with people as they go through the sanctification process. We need to be patient with ourselves as we go through the sanctification process. You know, it always amazes me how we are very patient with infants. You never see parents looking at a six-month-year-old child and say, Why are you not walking already? Why can't you grab a fork and a knife and cut your own steak? Why can't you put on your own diet? Why am I still feeding you Similac? We would look at them and say, that's irrational. Have you lost your mind? But we're very understanding of the natural progression of childhood development. And over a period of time, they'll learn how to walk and they'll learn how to talk and they'll learn how to be independent. In the same way, we go through a process of spiritual development. We grow in holiness. I like the way Hebrews chapter 6 verse 12 says it. He says, do not be slow for, do not be lazy, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So we need to be patient with the growth process. And this brings us to the last few verses, verse 31. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness of the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. And you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in the land lest you make, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Here we see that God instructs them not only to tear down their idols or their pillars, but not to make any type of covenant with them like marriage. He further warns them that if these people whom they have just driven out of the land come back into the land, they will be a snare to them. They will be a stumbling block to them. They will be tempted to follow their gods. And so here we see that God calls them to be a separate holy people, which brings us to letter B. We are called to pursue holy lives. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 declares these words. This is the will of God, your sanctification, and that you should abstain from sexual immorality. 1 Peter 1.16 says, be holy, for I am holy. 
When we got saved, the Holy Spirit came to live inside of us, and he empowers us. He motivates us. He convicts us. He transforms our hearts and our minds by the word of God. That's why John 17, 17 is so important. It says, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is. It's truth. The word of God, as we read it, as we hear it, as we memorize it, as we meditate it, has a sanctifying effect on our lives. And it helps us grow in holiness. For we are called to be separate from the ways of the world. We are called to be separate from the thinking of the world. We are called to be separate from the actions and attitudes and beliefs of the world. And again, just as God called them to pursue holy, separate lives, he also calls us to pursue separate, holy lives. And this brings us to chapter 24. As chapter 24 begins, we see that God calls Moses and Aaron, the high priest, his two oldest sons, and 70 elders of, of Israel to meet him on the mountain. Moses would go up and come near to the Lord, Aaron and his two sons and the 70 would come up, but they are not allowed to draw near. But they are to worship from afar. And the people of Israel, the general population, could not come up to the mountain at all. All the leaders, except for Moses, had limits to how close they could get to God. Nevertheless, he calls them all to get close to him. Then Moses reads the words of God to them. He reminds them of their responsibility to obey, to obey God, and they agree that they will do it. They will do everything that God has said. They offer sacrifices. Now, I have to warn you at this point on the story, it gets a little bit uh, gory. Then Moses takes the blood and sprinkles it on the altar and he sprinkles it on the people. And he does this because they are entering into a covenant. They are entering into an agreement with blood and with an oath. The covenant that God spoke to them through the mountain personally, with his own voice, is now being confirmed here. And the writer of the book of Hebrews, commenting on this very verse, says these words in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 18, where he says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. It's interesting that during the last Passover that Jesus celebrated on earth, as he is celebrating the meal with the disciples, he says, take, and he takes the cup and he blesses it. And he says, take, drink, this is the blood of the new covenant. And here's the point, and I don't want you to miss it. God's word, God's promises, God's covenants, are as serious as the shedding of blood. God's word is as serious as death. This is how committed God is to his word. 
So we see that he confirms the covenant with them by giving his words to them. They agree to keep the word and there's a sprinkling of the blood and sacrifices. And later on, you will see in subsequent chapters that he gave them the words on tablets of stone. This is a sign that God will be faithful to fulfill his covenant agreement with them. Therefore, they can trust God, which brings us to letter number C. We are called to trust his word. We are called to trust God and his word. As we saw, God's word is serious. God's word is reliable. God's word is trustworthy. Therefore, we can bank our lives on it. We must trust that what God says is true. Many of you know this scripture, but I will quote it anyway. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not to your own understanding. Psalm 125 verse 1 says, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved. Oh, I want to ask you a rhetorical question this morning. Do you trust God? Do you really trust God? It's been my experience that we, including myself, have selective trusting. We'll trust God with our job, but we struggle to trust God with our marriage. We'll trust God with our marriage, but we struggle to trust God with our finances. Or we'll trust God with our finances, but we struggle to trust God with our children. We have selective trusting. We are to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. In order to fully trust God, we must become free from the fear of unwanted outcomes. I'm going to say that again. In order to fully trust God, we must become free from the fear of unwanted outcomes. So, in the same way they had to trust God, we must learn to fully trust God, not only in one area, but in every area of our lives. Now, as the narrative progresses, we read in verse number 9. Then Moses and Arad and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. A, and he, meaning God, did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld the God of Israel and ate and drank, meaning God drew near to them and they celebrated and worshiped. Moses and Aaron, the high priest, and his two oldest sons and the 70 elders of Israel went up to meet God. Moses and the leaders had different limitations in proximity. Moses could come near to God, but the rest could only go so far. Yet, 
they all saw some resemblance of God and there was under his feet a sapphire blue pavement like visual, you know. As I was uh, studying this, my mind went to a Marvel movie, the uh, Fantastic Four, the fourth installment. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it. And I thought about the, the Silver Surfer. Uh, but, but God is much more awesome. God is much more majestic than a Marvel movie character. Many scholars believe this to be a theophany. What is a theophany? I've been dying to tell you. A theophany is a manifestation of God in the Bible that is tangible to the human senses. It is a visible appearance of God in the Old Testament period, often but not always in human form. Now, I have to be honest with you. Scholars are divided about this text. Some scholars believe it was a theophany, as I just explained. Some believe it was a Christophany. And some other scholars, as John MacArthur, think this was a one-time exception as when Moses saw the back parts of God. Huh. Either way, all those who came up at the command of the Lord to meet the Lord saw the sign and none of them su suffered harm as it was in all other theophanies in the Old Testament. This lets us know that God is willing and open to reveal himself to all of those who seek him humbly and seek him with a sincere heart, which brings us to letter number D. If you seek God, you will find him. The scriptures say, draw nigh unto me, and I will draw nigh unto you. You will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. Ask, and it shall be given. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it will be opened. Please understand something, and this might be a shocking statement to you. You are as close to God as you want to be. I'm going to say that again because I know that's a heavy statement. But I really want you to get it. You are as close to God as you want to be. In the same way that God was faithful to reveal himself to those leaders on the mountain, he will be faithful to reveal himself to you and I if we seek him diligently. He's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. I like the way Jesus said it in John 14, 21, which I will read for us. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And listen to this. And I will love him and manifest or reveal or show myself to him. You will find him if you seek him. Just like the high priest and the elders in the story. Now, in the last few verses of chapter 24, verses 12 through 18, we see that God calls Moses up to the mountain to receive the tablets written in stone, and Moses stays there for 40 days, which brings us to our fifth and final point. If I can have the worship team come up at this time. God is working for your good. Believe it. God was given Moses the Decalogue. 
the Ten Commandments, among other instructions, because Moses was up there for 40 days. And in verse 12, we see these words. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me, to the mountain, and wait there that I might give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. Here we see God providing written instructions for them while they weren't even aware. The Israelites were not privy to what God was doing on the mountain. God was giving Moses his word for the people. I like the way John Piper puts it in a quote, and, and I'll read. In every situation and in every circumstance of your life, God is always doing a thousand different things that you cannot see and you do not know. One of my favorite verses, and you, you, you might be saying to yourself, Pastor Tito, you sure have a lot of favorite verses. I do, I do, I do. It's true, it's true, it's true. In Psalm 27, around verses 13 and 14, and I'm quoting the old King James Version. My apology if you don't like that translation. David said this, I would have fainted. I would have given up unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord and be of good courage. So shall he strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And then Lamentations 3.25, it says, the Lord is good to the soul that seeks him. Now, as I bring this message to a close, let me encourage you with this. If you came today and you came discouraged or feeling like your life is heading in the wrong direction or you came feeling like there is no hope for you, I want you to know that God brought you to the right place. God is here to encourage you God is here to strengthen you. God is here to direct you. But you must know that Christ is our only hope. And second, for those of you who are here and you have not received Christ as your Lord and Savior, I urge you not to leave this place without surrendering your life to Christ. There will be people underneath the screens to pray with you about these things that I've been sharing with you. Would you stand to your feet with me and let us pray? Gracious and heavenly Father, creator of the universe, you who told the sea there and no further. You who transform the hearts of men. Lord, as we enter into a time of singing and ministry, and whether people receive prayer here in the front or back in the chapel, I pray that you would touch lives, encourage lives, bless lives, fill lives with your goodness and generosity and kindness. Show yourself strong in our lives just because you're God, just because you're good, and just because you can. In Jesus' name, amen.